Welcome to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, the first podcast to focus on the political side of pharmacy. Here's your host, Eric Geyer. Welcome, Political Pharmacist Podcast listeners. I'm your host, Eric Geyer, and with me today I have Bobby Giles. He's the Government Affairs Director for the Alabama Pharmacists Association and also the owner of Rainsville Drugs in Rainsville, Alabama. He's also a graduate from Auburn, so War Eagle, and welcome to the podcast, Mr. Giles. Hey, thank you very much. Glad to be here this morning. Yeah, hey, it's the privilege is all mine. Uh, you guys have done some awesome work down there in Alabama, which isn't always the first state that comes to mind when you hear things with pharmacy, which I, that's kind of why I wanted you on the podcast today, because Alabama has gotten a lot of praise for a new law they passed regarding PBMs, the pharmacy benefit managers. For the listeners, can you explain kind of what this bill does and when it takes effect? What this bill does, in a nutshell, it's a patient choice bill. That's that's what we're trying to do with this. It's uh, allow a patient to choose their pharmacy, and then also the local pharmacy, the opportunity to serve the people in their community. Uh, it has several components. In a nutshell, probably anti-mandatory mail order, where a patient can use mail order but it's not mandated. Anti-steering, where a patient cannot be required to use a pharmacy affiliated with the PBM. It prohibits unfair compensation of affiliated pharmacies. That's where a PBM cannot pay a pharmacy they own more than another pharmacy in the state providing the same services. Any rebates or spread pricing that the PBMs are receiving or or conducting in, in conjunction with claims for a client, that has to be disclosed. It has a component that requires credentialing fees, I mean credentialing, not to be any more than what the Board of Pharmacy requires other than basic minimum standards, and also that the PBM cannot charge a fee for enrollment into a network. It has some protection for 340B pharmacies, which was important to our hospital pharmacies and some of the pharmacies that are providing uh, care to some underserved areas. And lastly, the big one in my opinion, it actually allows our Alabama Department of Insurance to license and regulate PBMs operating in Alabama, which also includes the enforcement of our Audit Act that we passed in 2018. So this was very much something that we kept seeing patients being pulled away from their pharmacy, whether it was whether it was Walgreens going to CVS, CVS going to Winn-Dixie, Winn-Dixie going to Kroger, or somebody going to your local independent down the street. Uh, these these pharmacists have created relationships with these patients, and they're being pulled and pushed and steered away from just because of the PBM that the uh, insurer has chosen to use to administrate their claims. Wow, that's pretty comprehensive there. That You hit mail order, steering, compensation, spread pricing, disclosures, credentialing, 340B, and open them up to scrutiny from regulators, which... Some people might not always be the biggest fans of, but I think for something like PBMs that have operated in the dark for so long, there definitely needs a, to be a bright light shined in there to kind of reel it back in a little bit. That's a that's pretty comprehensive. What was the response to that that you guys got? We walked into the room the first the first committee meeting, and there were three or four of us that were you know gung ho and ready to ready to move this legislation, and it was standing room only with lobbyists opposing our bill. I've never they came out of the woodwork. It it was. Similar to where you, if you had hit a hornet's nest with a baseball bat, and they all started swarming, that's that's kind of the reply that we got. <laughs> that's uh, that's probably the appropriate reply given the uh, the amount of money, the hundreds of millions of dollars that are probably on the line for some of these PBMs with just the spread pricing alone in most states we've seen, let alone everything else, the steering, the mail order, and what have you. So that's a that's a pretty David versus Goliath story there that you guys came out 
absolutely on top of winning on every major point I can think of that someone would want in a PBM bill in their state. So that's uh, that's pretty awesome. Was there anything that you guys might have uh, given up or did you get pretty much everything you wanted with this bill so that pharmacists can practice on a fair and level playing field? We had several components that were in there trying to get additional support for the bill. There, there was a component that passed through the rebates all the way down to the point of sale to the patient level. Uh, the insurance plans, the, the health plans in the state, some of the private ones, they wanted to make sure that they retained those rebates to best serve their clients. So that piece got cut out. Specialty pharmacy, which is extremely lucrative, in my opinion, probably to the PBMs that control that market. So much of that is vertically integrated now to where the insurer owns a PBM, which in turn owns a specialty pharmacy, and in some cases all the way down to a retail pharmacy. They wanted to hold on to specialty, so specialty is excluded from this bill. That's something that um, we could work with. We knew we may have to give up. We didn't want to because we do have specialty pharmacies in Alabama that are being excluded from serving certain patients. If we get further down the road and as more transparency is out there, then there's a good possibility that we will look at that again. And if we can help our patients be better served by bringing specialty back into more pharmacies, or if we discover that the specialty part of pharmacy is being abused by the PBMs or needs to be adjusted, we'll look at that at that time. There were a few other things like uh, we wanted fiduciary responsibility for the PBM. They were they were adamant that that had to be pulled out. I don't understand that, but that <laughs> is something. So we, we wanted to just say that spread pricing was uh, absolutely forbidden. They came back and said that some plans want that. It has some cost control, which I still disagree. But we left that you could do spread pricing, but only if it was disclosed to the client upon request. And any client that failed to ask for that disclosure would just be making a mistake, in my opinion. So, yeah, there were, there were several things that we negotiated. Uh, there was a lot of language added, just little bitty pieces here and there of in-network. You must agree to the same terms and conditions, including reimbursement to serve a patient, you know, demographic, different things like that. And last but not least, the ERISA protected plans, there was an amendment put in late that allowed certain parts of our bill to be excluded from ERISA plans that apply to plan design. And a big part of that was the Rutledge versus PCMA case said specifically that states were not preempted by ERISA in regard to pricing and regulating PBMs. But the plan design that a self-funded ERISA-protected group, that was not protected. So there was a little bit of tweaking there. They probably got us through the house on the last the last chance there to get this through. And, I, and from what I understand, I didn't like it. Our association wasn't really for it. But that seems to be the reason behind Oklahoma's governor vetoing their PBM bill was fear that it was going to cost the ERISA plans more money. And so their governor sent it back to their legislature within a day or two of our bill passing. Okay, that's interesting. I did see some of that with Oklahoma where it did get uh, rejected by their governor, even though it passed pretty, I thought it was pretty 
pretty widely in their house and in their uh, legislature. But yeah, so when it comes to like the the thing like spread pricing, I think that one thing you hit there is huge because we've known that's where a, a lot of money has been kind of diverted. That if the plan requests it, they can see it. So that that really it kind of gives the the people who are paying the flashlight, if you will, to look and inspect everything to make sure they're getting what they pay for. Is that is that what that was meant to do? Exactly. That that on the not only the rebate. I think there's a huge problem. You've got a lot of HR guys who are exceptional at what they do or their companies. They just don't know the right questions to ask. Yeah. They don't know how this system works. Considering, you know, the PBM industry is 30, 35 years old, maybe, and they're all Fortune 50 companies. So they've learned how to make money. And there's nothing wrong with making money. I don't have any issue with that. It's just the lack of transparency. And are you doing the most for the people you're serving? There were several things within our bill that was a patient protection factor that did not benefit the pharmacies whatsoever. Right. It, was, it was more for the patient than the pharmacy in trying to get some of these components in there. Because I can ask anyone in Alabama, who is your PBM? And there's going to be three out of the five million that can tell you what a PBM is. <laughs> In my opinion, the we've had a huge, huge education piece for our legislature for them to understand the pharmacy business model because most people do not understand it. It's, it's truly, it's a truly unique business model that too many working components, rebates, PPMs, insurers, patients, doctors, pharmacists, manufacturers. So it, it goes full gamut, and it, it is hard to delineate where one stops and the other starts. And our legislature really had a difficult time understanding that. Yeah, and I've probably used this reference a few times, but if you ever watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, trying to explain how PBMs and pharmacy pricing works to somebody, you kind of feel like that meme of Charlie pointing at the whiteboard, going crazy with his hair everywhere and the dark circles under his eyes. That's just the only way you can halfway explain it is basically that meme right there. But the one thing you, you mentioned was you kind of hit the three key aspects with this bill. So who's ever paying the bill, so the payer, is protected now has more ability to look into things like this the pharmacy has a little bit more of a of a level playing field if you will the patient has more options better choices and possibly a little bit more understanding of what's exposure to what's going on with this and then access so by doing all of these you also improve the access to care for some of those remote pharmacies 340b and stuff like that so you really had every major aspect of what would go into a PBM law, in my opinion. So I think that's that's commendable right there. That's so impressive that you guys were able to get that through. And you kind of already hit what this means for pharmacies. Is there anything that you could say this might mean for pharmacists, maybe if they work at a chain or like a big box store at all? Well, and, and a lot of people going into this, they really thought this was an independent pharmacy bill, that the independents, the small mom and pop community pharmacies were the ones being left out. And I have the opportunity in my position now to not only talk to legislators and pharmacists throughout the state, I have the opportunity to speak to students at both Sanford University in Birmingham and Auburn, you know, here in Auburn. And we as pharmacists create pharmacy practices. We, we are healthcare providers and we have a pharmacy practice. And as a practice, we need the opportunity to build a patient base. And as we build that base, as we create trust, as we create relationships with these patients, we should have the opportunity to retain those patients and them not be steered away because of the insurer or the PBM that their health plan uses. So 
as I, 30 years ago, was able to open a pharmacy, open a pharmacy practice, have a fantastic client, you know, patient base, uh, and be able to keep those patients all these years, these kids graduating now, they need that same opportunity. And if they're going to build a practice, they need to be able to earn relationships with patients and maintain those. And I think that's the biggest thing for the pharmacist, in addition to the fact that you have a patient that you're taking care of, you know them, you know their regimen, you know their meds, you, you see them on a regular basis. If they're being steered away this year and then they come back the next, it's, it's hard to maintain continuity of care, for lack of a better term. And so I think that's huge for the pharmacist, the ability to serve their patients and keep their patients within their practice. We have seen a lot of pharmacy schools and practices go toward additional services. And a lot of the things that we do on medication management, immunizations, biometric screening, the various things that we're able to do for patients now in a pharmacy practice, if we're not filling prescriptions for these patients, you may not have a client base to do these extra services on. It's really hard to have a business that survives in today's society if uh, on just on additional services. There are additional services to what you do every day, and we still fill prescriptions, and I think that's a vital part of what we do for patients. Yeah, that's a good point, too, because like you said, there are additional services, and it's really hard to do an MTM if you're starting with the baseline of, I don't know, half the medications you're getting because you're forced to go to a mail order or to specialty or across the street or wherever it is without me putting in all this extra legwork, contacting the other pharmacy, things like that, just to try and find out what you're taking. Because, you know, patients, a lot of them know what they're taking, but the ones that are the highest touch or you make the biggest impact with may not even know what they're taking or what it's for, as I'm sure anyone who's ever done an MTM claim is well aware of. <laughs> and that's not to knock the patient. That's just, you know, fact of health literacy in this country. And, you know, right. that, what you're talking about there really hits home with me because I worked at what was one of the highest volume stores uh, in the chain where I currently work. And with some of the PBM switches, CVS Caremark has a care source plan here in Ohio, which is for Medicaid. And then they cut us right out of it. And my store lost the most scripts, I think it was, of anyone in the country, at least in our region. And it was like 300-something scripts a day I was losing with that plan. We picked up some other plans, wow. and we got some. But, you know, we're, we're losing a full-time pharmacy right out of our store with that plan. And on top of it, we're also a specialty store for HIV, and I'm actually working being accredited myself for HIV. And even now we're seeing where we have all the access, all the credentialing, URAC credentialing, everything for HIV, but we're billing HIV meds, and they're telling us, well, you're not truly specialty. You're not specialty enough. And then I'm having to turn away patients, and I've had patients go days without their HIV medication because you know we can't open the bottle and we can't just give it to them on loan. We're not going to get paid for it to give them their medication. And you know, to be honest with you, generic Truvada now costs $19 a bottle. Why are people rejecting that as a payment? That should just be, here you go, here's some money on top of it, and just keep them healthy because HIV patient has any issues whatsoever, that bill is going to rack up in the thousands real quick with testing and visits and what have you, a specialty. So that, to me, really hits home with what you're talking about with a bill like this and trying to even the playing field and really take care of patients because – you know, I've had a patient who followed me from my old store, which was also an HIV accredited store, which isn't very far away. And he was part of this switch where they, they made him go to anyone basically but us with the CareSource switchover. And luckily, this guy's pretty health literate. He went and actually switched his plan immediately so that he could stick basically with me and with my pharmacy. And it was literally just yesterday when from the day we we're recording this 
where I found out he had pancreatic cancer and he came in and he had the whole staff in tears because he's really just such a nice guy and we really loved him. And even though he was new to some of the staff because he came over here because of me, it was just, you know, the continuity of care, right? He likes coming there because I've had some honest conversations with him, whether it be about his HIV, his health or whatever, but he felt so compelled to actually like tell me that and really like open up about it. And as we all know, pancreatic cancer isn't a very good one to have. And we had that discussion with him. And so it was a little hard battle I had the other day, but it was just one of those things of like, that's what some people put in us as pharmacists. Why are we limiting that? Like, why are we inhibiting that to make them go mail order, or go to a quote unquote specialty when really the special care they need is just being able to see that person, talk to them and, you know, not be alone in this world. Yeah. And, and you're absolutely, you're absolutely right. I think that pharmacists have not done a, a good enough job at quantifying our value to the healthcare system and to our patients. It's very common that you are doing things for this gentleman specifically that nobody else was, was doing. <clears throat> You're allowing him to avoid healthcare costs because he's open with you. He, y'all have good conversations. It improves his healthcare. It avoids hospital visits. It, it avoids doctor visits. All these kind of things that we're saving money for the health plan but our patient that we're taking such great care of is being steered away to another pharmacy and it's only being done for the dollar. It's yeah. because of money. They are trying to get all of these prescriptions in-house at one place or another so they can control them and gain additional rebates on them and collect more data on them so that they can do the things that they want to do to make more money with it and they're losing the patient in the process. I made a very mean statement that somebody did not care about the patient anymore, and I was referencing a PBM slash insurance, and uh, they, they took offense with that. But I'm like, look, we're the ones caring for the patient. Y'all never touch the patient. Yep. You're just managing the money behind the scenes, and you don't even know this person. So we, we really struggle with that. And the steering, we need to take our profession back. Yes. From, and I hate to say take our profession back from the PBMs, but that's kind of who is controlling. They're telling the doctors what they can write. They're telling us what we can dispense, how many days supply we can provide them, what the patient has to pay. They're doing all of that, and they call it formulary management and plan management when it's really just money manipulation, and it, it drives me a little insane. I want to be able to take care of my patient the way I used to. Yeah, and it's interesting too. Where we're at. It's interesting too that we have to have some sort of fiduciary responsibility to the patient to do like at least what's in the best interest of their health, right? And generally right. speaking, that includes costs, copays, what have you. Like we're not going to recommend a med that's they can't afford because it's the best one. And it's two thousand dollars because we realize that we need to get one that's covered that brings the copay down right. and makes it accessible. Whereas we aren't seeing sure. that with the PBMs and that that thing you touched on earlier about them not wanting fiduciary responsibility. Again, that's something we can, that you said you guys might look at later, but I think that that's one thing is we start seeing some of these plans with the, that flashlight, if you will, to be able to shine it in that spread pricing area. We might start seeing some more power players hop in going, yeah, they need fiduciary responsibility too, especially when they look at the patient outcomes with some of the stuff. So I think that that's, that's really big. Kind of moving off this a little bit, kind of more to what sparked sure. it. Did Rutledge versus PCMA, was that kind of what pushed this over the finish line or what did Rutledge PCMA do here? What we did with that, that was funny that you asked did, did this for I looked back, I had a couple of pharmacists that are members and pharmacists that I've known for a while, Dan McConaughey and Steve Love, 
they gave me the language where they had introduced a PBM regulation, PBM bill, back in 2006, <laughs> and it went nowhere. It was annihilated. I mean, it, it probably never got out of committee. And they said that we've tried this a couple of times. Here's the language that we had. And they they were they were fantastic in looking into the future. And if they had gotten this in, you know, 20, 15, 20 years ago, it would have been huge for Alabama over the past 15 years. But they were unsuccessful then, uh, not due to lack of effort. It's just the uh, system wasn't working in their favor. So we've worked on PBM legislation for a while. We passed an audit bill back in 2018. We passed a PBM licensure bill in 2019, which also included some gag clause uh, language. But that effectively was just PBM registration. They didn't really have any teeth to enforce anything. Then in 2019, that was 2019 that we, we did the licensure. In 2020, we introduced a basic PBM bill that was mostly anti-mandatory mail order, anti-steering. And, um, of course, that got killed with COVID. Uh, yeah. Our session ended early, and, and not a single bill that was introduced in healthcare made it across the finish line in 2020. In the meanwhile, the, the Rutledge case had gone through the Supreme Court, and that decision kind of pushed us to go ahead and go for it all, uh, or at least most of the things that NCPA had put into their model language. The National Association of Insurance Commissioners is still working on model language. So when we talked with our insurance department, they said, well, this language is almost complete. If we're going to do this, let's go ahead and put it all in there. And we, we commend our uh, insurance commissioner, our insurance uh, department, for coming on board and actually working with us on this bill. So it was a combination of things that we tried to do that, we had not had a whole lot of success, and then the Rutledge case really allowed us nationally to open some eyes that had not looked at this in the past, and because 30-some-odd states are trying to pass PBM regulation at this time, then we, we were one of the ones that was doing the same exact thing, and, and I commend the folks at NCPA that has really worked hard to take what several states have done and put it together into language that's it's been vetted, made it through the system somewhere, whether it was Georgia or Oklahoma or Ohio or Florida, wherever, and um, kind of put some of that together to make it easier for, for the rest of us that are needing PBM legislation. I so hope that Congress will open their eyes to what the states are doing and follow the state's lead to uh, pass meaningful legislation at a federal level. It, it's needed tremendously. PBMs are not regulated, neither at the state nor federal level at this time, and uh, we've got to move in that direction. Yeah, that's interesting. You said, I knew there's a lot of states. I didn't exactly have that number, but 31 states are looking to move on PBM legislation right now, which is a vast majority of states, and it's pretty telling. I think it was uh, Rep. Diane, Hirsch, Diana Hirschberger who introduced a PBM bill in the Congress that really hasn't gotten a lot of press. I'm not sure if it's just due to the politics that she's in the House, which is run by the opposite party of her, but that could be something to keep an eye on as we see states start passing this, at least to some extent, to see where it goes. It might take a few years. We all know how federal legislation works but i think that's something that we have we could see some movement on since i think it was also chuck grassley introduced something previously about drug pricing yeah. which would directly affect how pbms operate and their kind of cost model so uh, you know seeing it yeah. come out of a state like alabama always surprises me 
I know Ohio is not exactly the most progressive state, but I definitely know Alabama <laughs> is not. And to see something right. like this come out is really like, whoa, this is an eye opener. This is healthcare reform that I don't think anyone saw coming two or three years ago, at least on the federal level. But it's one of those things that when you start explaining it, everybody's going to start agreeing on it except those who make a lot of money on it. Is that kind of the way you saw this? Oh, absolutely. We did not have, I did not have a single representative nor a single senator that would say, I don't believe that a patient deserves a choice. <laughs> Nobody said that. You know, it's, it's again, do you think your patient should have a choice of where they receive their pharmacy services, get their prescriptions filled? Absolutely. That's a no-brainer then why can they not? And then that's where the education piece comes in. Well, there's some, there's a middleman that says they have to use this pharmacy. Yeah. Why? Well, because they claim that it saves money. Well, does it? Well, actually, no. <laughs> and then it goes on and on and on. But yeah, there, as far as opposition to patient choice, there's very little. Yeah. There's very little. The, the fear factor that the opposition used was strictly, it's going to cost more, it's going to cost more, it's going to cost more. You know, they came out of meeting and said, every patient who has to follow this law is going to pay $1,000 more a year. And truthfully, the only way we could come up with that number was if the plan did not receive the rebate, they took the amount of rebates they're getting and divided it by the number of people they had in their plan, it come out somewhere between $800 and $1,100. Well, we said the rebate had to pass to the patient. So the patient wasn't truly out that money, but the plan was. So we, we worked with it. We needed to get this passed, so we were willing to give some things up. Yeah, it's one of those things, if it's 90% right, then, you know, let's take that. If the 10% isn't going to break it, you know, that's a, that's a good way of looking at it, at least for me at this point. So I think yeah, that's, a, that's, that's part. Of, yeah, that's part of the legislative process. They, they equate that or the analogy that's been given often in Alabama is, uh, everybody loves to eat sausage, but you never want to go to the sausage factory. You don't want to see it being made. And legis- and passing bills is very similar. Watching legislation is, is kind of like watching the sausage factory. There's a lot goes into that that you don't want to see. Yeah, I've seen that personally with some of the bills I followed here in Ohio and around the country. So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying there. No, that's a great analogy. The one thing I want to ask you, I think you're uniquely situated because of your position and your experience in owning a pharmacy, your ties to legislation like this. Do you th- see this as a boon time now for pharmacists to really take our profession into our own hands and start opening our own businesses, our own small chains, our own you know corner stores to really take back and practice as we feel we should? I think it's a step in the right direction by all means for us to take our profession back to be able to properly manage our patients. As far as going out and opening your own pharmacy and starting from scratch and really, you know, being able to do it the way we did it 30 years ago, uh, I don't think we're quite there yet. The reimbursements are at an all-time low as far as margin goes, and standalone pharmacies really struggle to buy competitively. You've got so many big players, you know, you've got your big three, and that that's a huge issue as far as competition and they can buy better than a standalone independent can. The DIR fees on Medicare plans are sucking money out of every community in every state. That, that's something that's got to be addressed and it's got to stop. And like I said, in quantifying our work to the, you know, to the healthcare profession, we've got to do that so that we are properly compensated for what we're doing for patients. 
we're getting closer to being able to take care of patients on a more personal level, like a small independent. And I think that whether it's even a, um, a smaller version of what you do within some of the large chains, there's great pharmacists working in every practice setting throughout the country, regardless of who they're working for, because yep. we have great pharmacists who are properly trained to take care of patients. They're compassionate. We've got, we've got to address some of the reimbursement issues. A pharmacist should not be required to dispense a medication that they're not being paid costs for. I know that a lot of the, sadly, a lot of the chain pharmacists never know what actual acquisition cost was. In our setting, we know that if we dispense a three-month supply of insulin, we may actually lose $90 by dispensing that. Yeah, we've seen those stories all over. Yeah, and, and a lot of the bigger pharmacies, the I, I don't think that there's transparency there to know what your cost may actually be. But there's there's no business, and, and although it's a healthcare provider, there's no business that should be required to lose money to serve a patient that's not subsidized in some other way. And I'm not I'm not an advocate for subsidizing. I'm just saying you should properly reimburse pharmacies. So far as going out and taking off right now and opening your own, uh, it's still a very difficult path to take for a standalone pharmacy. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. And I really think that laws like this, and when we start to kind of shine the light on it, if you will, I feel that it might take a year or two. We'll see. Obviously, we know reimbursement tends to lag. And legislation yeah. and legal things always take a lot more time than we'd ever want. But uh, I feel like that this is really setting the path, if you will. If you equate this to building the road, you've laid the foundation, and now we just need someone to kind of like pave it so that we can do this, if you will, or put the finishing touches right. on it to really make it, I don't want to say smooth, but much easier to do than where it currently is with all these barriers to entry that you're talking with and even barriers beyond entry, really. So. Right, right. And I've had several pharmacists ask me, uh, I, I get a text or a call, according to my wife, about every 15 minutes, but honestly, <laughs> it's at least every day. They said, is this going to save my pharmacy? And I said, no, no, no. This is not going to fix the issues you're facing right now with reimbursement. I said, if it improves your reimbursement, it's only because they were overcompensating their affiliated pharmacies, and if they will have to raise you up to what they're paying them. Otherwise they've got to lower the reimbursement to their affiliated pharmacies to match what they're paying you. And I don't believe they will do that because they're going to be losing money just like you are. So is this going to improve reimbursement for pharmacies? I don't know. Could it? Potentially. So that, that's a huge that's a huge step. And we'll have to see. It'll take a couple of years before this, you know, really starts to shake out. And you had asked at the beginning of this, when does, when does this go into effect? How soon will it, we see change? And I never answered that. Our bill actually goes into effect or becomes effective July 1st, 2021. And all PBM contracts, it will apply to all PBM contracts beginning October 1st of this year. So someone tried to argue with the opposition that they needed more time. And I said, well, I know you need more time, but you you faxed me a contract and I've got to reply within five days. So yeah. giving you six months is more than ample time to address this and get everything, you know, compliant. So it goes into effect July 1st. All PBM contracts, it applies to those uh, October 1st, 2021. Yeah, that's a, I, I like that reply you had there because that is very true. I've, I've 
I haven't dealt with that myself, but I've heard stories from people I trust, and that's a that's pretty pretty good way to to respond to it. But yeah, so I think that this is awesome. I'm super pumped to hear kind of what moves with this in the future. And like you said, this might not save someone's pharmacy like right now and then, but over the road it might because it might cause some of these chains to not pop up on every corner, especially like a CVS that is just popping up to try and run somebody else out of town and steal their business, which we've seen in my area of Ohio where they did with several places and they bought a chain out that had 20 stores and closed all but two of them. And they just moved those contracts right over so they can get more uh, more script volume, if you will. Right, right. And the thing is, as, as we talk about compensation and properly reimbursing pharmacists and pharmacies for what they do, if if we can get there, then we will be able to provide those extra services. We'll be able to provide better care to our patients. And even, you know, even the, the large chains, the chains that do not provide their employees with enough staff, if you're properly reimbursing that pharmacy, they can adequately pay people to help them help their patients and, and overall improve the health care of all the patients, regardless of the pharmacy they're, they're choosing. Yeah. Yeah. It's just leveling the playing field. So, well, I can't let you go. Yeah, bef- absolutely. I can't let you go before I ask the two questions I ask everyone on this podcast. So I hope you're ready for them. If you could change one thing about pharmacy that isn't a law or like a legal thing, what would it be? My wife and I actually have discussed this. What, what's the one thing you would change? And and I and I probably agree with my wife Stacy on this that um, I would love to see pharmacy make it back to where we're the most trusted profession, and we were for a really long time. We were the most trusted profession, and the way we would do that is that get us back to where we have time to talk to our patients, work to solve their medication needs, determine what's the most affordable option that they could manage. You know, where we have more control. We don't have control anymore. The doctors don't have control. Yeah. The costs are out of control. When I, when I began pharmacy almost 30 years ago, insulin was $15 a bottle. You didn't have, <laughs> you didn't have $500 medications. So these costs have gotten out of control, and you were able to work with your patient. You found the alternatives. You'd contact the doctor. You know, if the patient absolutely couldn't afford something, you call the doctor, the doctor gave them samples or switched it. They trusted us to take care of them. So if I, if I could change something about pharmacy, I would put us back into control of helping our patients, not the total loss of control. And in doing that, get us back to the most trusted profession in healthcare and just most trusted profession in general. Yeah, first that that's literally what we go to school for. So I can't, you know, agree with that hard enough. But uh, also, it's and, it's always good to agree applies, with your wife. Yes, and that applies to not only our everyday meds that we dispense, you know, for chronic, you know, health conditions. It applies to specialty meds too. This whole crock that you know you're not qualified to dispense a specialty medication. That's what we went to school for. We're yeah. pharmacists. We're trained to handle medications that require special handling, uh, special temperatures, administration, and follow-up. That's what we do. We, we provide education to patients about their medication. That's what pharmacists do. So, yeah, that's, I would just love to see us get back to that. Yeah, no, I again, I could not agree with that more, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you and your wife both agree on that for the sake of your marriage, too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, is, it, is always, it is always good to agree with the wife, believe me. <laughs> awesome. Hey, if you could change one law in pharmacy, federal or state, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but what would it be? 
pharmacists would be compensated on a fee-for-service model. Okay. That's we, plain and simple. That, plain and simple. You would be paid average acquisition price for your location or your state and a, a reasonable dispensing fee to cover the cost of dispensing the medication, a fee-for-service model, business model. Uh, that would allow, you know, anyone who is serving that, Anyone who is serving a patient within a health plan would be paid the same for serving that patient. It would be a level field. If uh, if someone worked for your local power company, you know, regardless of the pharmacy they went to, if that pharmacy accepts that plan, you're paid the same for that. So those pharmacies that do a little better job of running their business would potentially make a little bit more money because they run a little leaner. Those pharmacies that buy a little better because of their volume would would make a little bit more money those pharmacies that were out there you know struggling a little bit they knew that if they improved the number of patients that they're serving then they would have a little better cash flow to provide the extra services sponsor ball teams whatever they want to do with that money in their community and it would have to be it would have to be a level fee-for-service pay acquisition costs fee-for-service and uh, no clawbacks no fees no dirs those kind of things. So just the opportunity to serve that patient. That's, that's, that's the law I would change. It's amazing how after all these years we go back to just such a simple pricing scheme after decades of making it so complicated no one can understand it. Back in the, back in the day, and I hate to say that because I'm not very old. I'm 53 years old. I don't feel old. <laughs> uh, sometimes, I, sometimes, my, sometimes my bones feel old. <laughs> but um, you, stand, you stand all day like pharmacists, you're going to be sore. Yeah. Pa- patients brought a prescription in. You told them what it would cost. They paid for it. They then turned that in and got reimbursed from their insurance company. That's the way it worked. And I'll tell you something. If it was something that was so expensive, they would then determine, do I really need this? Or they ask the question, is there a less expensive alternative that will do the same thing? Yeah. And the market kind of fixed itself because a drug company, a manufacturer, would not put a product out there that was so expensive that nobody could buy. But now that everyone seems to have an insurance card, and that insurance card has plan benefits managed by PBM, costs have gone through the roof, and this is supposed to be the cost-saving entity of health care and pharmacy benefits. I don't see it. I, I think we've missed, the, we've missed the boat on that one. Yeah, and to your point, if you look at how long PBMs have been around, you look at the uh, how much money we spend on prescription drugs over that time, it's just a nothing but rise, which kind of validates your point that there really isn't a market. It's more of a hidden money-moving machine. So I think that really just kind of highlights what you're talking about. Because believe it or not, I'm, o- I'm only 35, and I remember some. it was a lot easier back in the late 90s, early 2000s about how much easier it was to build some of this stuff. Right, and, and, we're, and we're double, you know, we're, we're billing a prescription, and then because it's so expensive, the patient even has to have assistance with their copay. So then you have to bill that again, and that's after you've gone through the process of getting a prioritization from <laughs> the insurance to be able to cover it to begin with, when in the end, that was the best medication for the patient that the doctor wanted them to have. And we're jumping through all these hoops just so that patient who's paying $1,000 a month insurance premium can get their prescription filled. It's, it's gotten out of hand. I'll yeah. get on a soapbox there if I'm not careful. It, it, it could be better. That's the issue. We could take great care of our patients 
and all pharmacists could do it if the system could be improved. Transparency is necessary, and we've got to pull the curtain. We've got to look behind the curtain, and we've got to shine that flashlight. We've got to see what the other side's doing. I don't have a problem with how they do some things. They just need a little bit of transparency in what they're doing and do it to save money for the patient and save health care dollars because that, that's a road that we can't sustain at the, at the rate we're going. Yeah, totally agree. And I, I think you just, I'll let you get in the soapbox because it's a podcast. So those people who are listening are probably super engaged and agree with you. So that's, <laughs> that makes total sense. But hey, uh, just well, listeners, so they can find Bob. He's at Alabama Pharmacists Association. He's their government affairs director, obviously. So please reach out to him if you have questions, you want to learn more. He's been awesome in just going back and forth with me on this. And I really feel that his expertise plus his ability in the field as a practicing pharmacist really shines through with what he does here. So Bob, thanks for joining the podcast. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Anybody out there that wants to reach out, don't hesitate. And any state that's trying to pass PBM legislation, never underestimate the power of your local community pharmacist, regardless of their practice setting. They know their elected officials. They need to contact their elected officials, and they need to educate their elected officials on the practices of PBMs, the the practice of pharmacy. What we do and how we do it is vital to us taking our profession back and being able to provide the best care to our patients. Yep. Yep. I couldn't say that any better myself. So again, thanks for coming on the podcast. Listeners, if you can, share the heck out of this, review it, give it five stars on any of the uh, podcast platforms. And just because I usually, I kind of stopped saying this a while ago for these episodes, but I think this one really hits the nail on the head of what needs to be heard when it comes to the discussion around PBMs. I don't care if it's patients, I don't care if it's pharmacists, I don't care if it's legislatures. I think this is the basic backbone of the conversation that needs to be had so that people can start asking the right questions when it comes to their state or their federal uh, legislators as well. So again, thanks for coming on the podcast. And as always, listeners, thanks for listening to the Political Pharmacist Podcast, your prescription for pharmacy and politics.